Good morning. My name is Nathaniel. Um, I am super grateful to be able to be here with you this morning. And I got a couple things before we dive into the text. Um, first, if you are new, we would love to get to know you. And so there are uh, connect cards scattered across the rows as well as in the back at our information desk. Uh, and if you could fill that out and we will definitely get back to you and we'd love to take you out to lunch or you know something. And so we would, we would love to connect. Uh, number two, there are also Bibles available, the blue Bibles that are in the rows as well in the back. If you need a Bible or if someone you know needs one, just take it. Okay, we don't want them. Just take them. They're all for you. Um, and lastly, the art walk has started happening here at the incubator. And so that means there's going to be art throughout the rest of this year in the back all over. And I know right now there's a lot of ceramic pieces. And so we just ask that uh, you be careful when you're back there, preferably, you know, not running around through them. Uh, so parents, watch those kids, please. We don't want uh, one of our kids to break something. And so, uh, yes, that's the last announcement. Um, Today, we are continuing our time in Galatians. We've been in Galatians for a little while. Um, and Galatians is an interesting book, as you've probably noticed, where Paul really uh, kind of digs in on the Galatians and kind of what they're going through and what they're dealing with. And uh, we even saw, you know, a couple weeks ago that he went so far as to be like, are you morons? <laughs> you know, calling them idiots. And so we see that there's a lot of rebuke in this uh, book. Today, though, starting Galatians 4, these first seven verses, we see uh, something unique because we've up to this point seen a lot of rebuke, seen a lot of challenge where Paul is really just digging into them. And then today, we're going to see something different. And then after today, we're going back to him asking questions and being like, guys, come on, just come on, please just listen to me. But today, today's a little different. And so today is a day where we're able to kind of see the high point of Paul's letter, where Paul is able to say, look, I know I'm challenging you. I know that this has been a little rough and you might feel a little attacked right now, but this is why I'm doing this. What I'm going to tell you today, this is why we need to challenge you. This is why we need to talk about these things. And so today, these seven verses at the beginning of chapter four are actually this high celebration for what God has done. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time for joy. It's a time to remember, okay, it may have hurt, you know, reading the last few chapters, and it may hurt again, but today, this stuff, these seven verses, man, this should give me hope and encouragement and joy. And so that's what we want to think of as we go throughout the rest of our time this morning. As we look at this passage, we want to keep in mind that Paul, even though some of it still is going to be challenging and still difficult, Paul is saying this is a reason to celebrate. And so we want to be joyful and happy in this. Because the main idea of all of Galatians comes down to today. And that's going to be our main idea. The thing I want you to take away today is also Paul's main idea for his entire letter, and that is that our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient and it is complete. Our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient and it is complete. We don't have to add more to it. There's nothing else other than faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so to give a little context, which Marco has talked about a lot more uh, in the past, so we'll just cover it real quick. The Judaizers, a group within the church, were trying to convince the Gentiles that for them to be saved, they had to also follow old Jewish custom and the Mosaic law and had to be circumcised, things like that, right? And if you want a lot more information, you haven't heard the past sermons, go back and listen to Marco's. He, he dives into this more But that's the context that we find ourselves in, is that groups within the church were trying to say, if you're actually going to be a Christian, actually follow Christ, then you have to do these other things too. And so we've heard this. We've heard Marco talking about this. We've read it in the text. And it's easy for us to kind of sit there and be like, yeah, that's definitely not true. How could they even kind of fall into that? Of course we don't need to be circumcised. Right? It's hard to miss the application for today, because it's something specifically that happened in the first century. But this problem persists. And in fact, we're going to see that in this passage, Paul actually gives us um, kind of the blueprint for why this problem is not just for the Galatians at that time with the Judaizers. It's actually something that's going to persist throughout the church. And Paul knew this. And it's true. We still struggle with these same things. I know for a fact that we do because I've heard it countless times from people even here in McAllen. So I'll give you a few examples. And these examples are things that I have actually heard, okay? I'm not just making this up. These are things that people have actually said to me. Where somebody's coming up to me before and said, man, I just can't even imagine how a Christian could be a Republican or a Democrat. Man, if you're a Christian, there's no way you would put your kid into a public school system. There's no way that if you're a Christian, you could believe in something like evolution. Has to be a literal six-day creation process. Man, if you're a Christian, then you absolutely have to love Christian media. Hillsong's got to be your first thing to go to. I mean, these things may seem silly to some, but for some others, this is a reality. People actually believe that to be a Christian, you have to fall in line with certain ideologies, certain beliefs that are of the world. I mean, I opened up with political parties because, let's be real, the last two years, what, what has been the conversation? And it has been very divisive within the church where huge groups of people within the church say that if you are part of this party or that party, then you're not a Christian because there's no way you could support that. No way you could be a part of this. In essence, they are adding on to salvation, saying that if you are to be saved, if you are to be a Christian, then you have to also believe these things. Or on the other side, that if you are to be a Christian, you can't believe these things. the problem that Paul was dealing with in the early church with the Galatians is not something that only they dealt with. We still deal with this today. And Paul knows this, and he knows that we're going to deal with this, and so he gives us a solution. He gives us a way to kind of work through it, a way for us to process all of this so that we can turn to the truth. 
he explains that we are part of a world, a broken, fallen, corrupted world that just functions differently than the way God functions. And that's why we keep going back to this misunderstanding, why we keep going back to these gospels that are not the gospel. To understand that salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, according to scripture, is sufficient, we need to come to terms with the fact that the way we do things is inadequate. The way that we think about the world is inadequate. The way that we function at a base level is inadequate for salvation apart from Jesus Christ. God saves. The salvation he offers is contrary to anything that we could even imagine. And we see this clearly in the first three verses of chapter four. So as you turn your Bibles to chapter four, let's pray, and then we will dive into this passage. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are, thankful that you have given us your holy word so that we can not only understand you more and understand who you are, what you do for us, but you give us application even beyond the context here. You help us to be able to navigate our struggles throughout our lives today. Father, you are alive. Christ, you are alive, and your word is not just some text on a page, but rather it's something that guides us, sanctifies us, encourages us. And that's what we ask, that you help us Prep our hearts today so that we can be encouraged, sanctified, saved. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and that we can always count on your promises. In your holy name, amen. The first three verses in chapter four says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so the beginning part of this is a uh, carryover from an example that he gave in chapter 3 where he's talking about uh, under the law, it's as if we were heirs and not quite fully into our inheritance yet, um, but we're being managed and prepared and people are still over us as we kind of get to that point where we're ready to accept our inheritance. But Jesus Christ, his coming is the fullness of our inheritance. So that time is now over. So he's talking about the law, that under the law, God's people are waiting upon their inheritance. So the law we can think of as a time of preparation. And so what, what are we being prepared for, though? Another translation of this passage talks about the guardians and managers that are you know, set over the child as they are waiting for their inheritance is equivalent to like a schoolmaster. So it's not just people kind of managing you know, the inheritance, but it is actually teaching the child so that when they are coming into their inheritance, they are able to use it well and understand it and be able to fully engage in their inheritance in a correct way. And so if we think of the law in the same way, we see that it is a prep time so that we may be prepared for our inheritance so that we may understand it. 
And so the law, the purpose of the law is to change the way that our minds and our hearts think so that we can be completely ready to accept God's salvation. And we see in verse three why that is necessary. Because we are enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And that's the key phrase in this passage, the elementary principles of the world. It is because of our enslavement to that that we have to be prepared, that God's people had to be prepared, that we need something to change the way that we think. Otherwise, we won't be able to understand it because God's salvation is so contrary to the way that we function. And so let's look at that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. What's that actually mean and how does that uh, kind of keep us from understanding what God's salvation really means? And so if we look at the original language for this phrase, for these words, it's talking about the foundational elementary building blocks that the world functions on. And so directly from the text as well is this understanding of phonetics when it comes to language. For the written word as well as for the spoken word, the base thing, the building blocks that all language is birthed from is Phonetics, the sounds, right? Sounds that you make. That's how we then expand from that to have written language and spoken word. That's the elementary principle of language, phonetics. In the same way, the world functions in a way where we've got these basic building blocks that everything comes out of. All right, does that make sense? We're able to move forward from that elementary principle. And so the application, though, in this passage is talking about how does that relate to people? What's the elementary principles of this world in which we function and how we think and how we relate to one another? And so the Greek and the Roman understanding of this is a cosmic sense of balance and justice. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying that at our just most base need, we have to have a world that functions with balance. There has to be justice. If somebody does something absolutely terrible to me, I have to believe that they will get it back. That if I do good, then good will come back to me. That's the elementary principle of this world in which we function on a relational level and as people. That's the Greek and the Roman understanding. That's what Paul is saying. And it's true. I mean, that's how, apart from Jesus Christ, that's how we think. We think that if I'm super nice to you, if I come to you, I'm gracious, friendly, I expect you to be friendly back, right? If I come and sucker punch you, I should probably get ready to defend myself. We expect that when we do a good thing to somebody else, we're gonna get it back in return. And when we do evil, it's coming back on us. Karma is something that's born from this idea. It is across every culture, it is across every people, because this is how we think in terms of relationship. There's a transaction for everything. And so Paul says, this is how we function. I know I function this way, you function this way, Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, you function in this manner. But he says, God doesn't. That's not how God functions. He says this salvation that he has for you is not transactional. 
And he says, I know that doesn't make any sense to you. You feel like you have to earn it. You feel like you have to balance the scales. But God does not expect you to because you can't. And so the law is a time of preparation so that we can understand that if we function the way we feel like we should, the way the elementary principles of the world tell us we should, that we should always have this good for good and bad for bad, we will always come out empty. But then that's the hope, is that God doesn't do it that way. And so that's how he starts chapter four because he is saying that we have great joy in the fact that this is not God's way. Our way is not God's way. He forgives us even though it's undeserved. He loves us even though we shouldn't be. And that no matter how much good or bad you are, whether you're the best person that's ever lived or if you're the worst person that's ever lived, that he still wants you. And that under his salvation and forgiveness, you can be redeemed. That is the good news that Paul is telling us in this book. And so we want to be able to hold on to that. But we also want to understand that we want to continuously go back to a transactional relationship model. It's the elementary principle of this world, the one that we still live in. And so it's no wonder that we continuously come against these same problems of groups of people wanting to add things on to their salvation, add things on to other people's salvation, because we always feel like, yes, I see that you say this, that it's Salvation by faith, but surely it's not. That's why we continuously struggle with this. And why the time of the law was so necessary. And so let's time out before we continue on in this. Let's time out and think about this in terms of application for us. Because a huge question arises out of this conversation. Do you believe your relationship with God is transactional? And now we can think of this in two ways. Do you think, maybe one, that your salvation itself is transactional? Do you believe that you have to continuously do these things to stay saved? That you're just going to lose it because you've dropped the ball one too many times? Do you think that your salvation has to be a transaction, a business deal with God? God, if I just do these things, then I'll be good. Or God, if you just do these things, then I'll follow you. If you just take care of this situation, I promise I won't do that again. Are we adding things on? Do we think it's a transaction with him? Or the second way, Say you're a Christian, and you do fully believe, yes, my salvation is by faith alone. But you have fallen into the trap to think that your sanctification is transactional. That your holiness is a transaction. That if I am really to defeat sin in my life, I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z. Man, God says that you are holy because I am holy. 
There is no transaction. There is no business deal you can make with God to say, God, if I just add 15 more minutes a day in your word, then I know you'll help me stop looking at porn. If I just make sure I go to my prayer closet once a week for 30 minutes on my knees, then I'll stop being so angry at everybody. Do you believe your sanctification is a transaction with God? Whether you want to admit it or not, is that how you're actually functioning? Because I tell you what, it can't be. Because you will never find fullness of joy, you're never going to find freedom if you continue to function from the elementary principles of this world. We have to function the way God functions. We have to accept that his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, and the power that he offers his children is free of charge. Because what we do is we find ourselves in these situations where we say, if I just do the right things, I'll make that transaction, things will work out. And we may even cover it up by saying, I'm just trying to be more holy. I'm just trying to live obediently. So I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And yet you're still thinking, because I do those things, then I'll get what I want. And God the whole time is sitting there saying, my child, my child, I'm just here. Why do you keep rejecting the grace I'm giving you and trying to cover it up with things, even if they're good things? We want to be able to sit in God's grace and accept the grace that he has for us. And Marco's talked about this, this entire series. He keeps saying, I don't, I'm not going to give you anything to do because you need to just sit in his grace. And I mean, it's true. That's what we need to do. We need to stop thinking transactionally and start thinking in terms of just pure relationship. But how do we do that? Okay, I get that it's difficult to be like, okay, I want to do that, but I have no idea how to do it, and I, every time I think of how to do it, I just think of more things to do, which makes me feel like I'm now going back to, you know, being a transactional. I get the struggle with it, okay? I am also not going to give you something to do, but I will share with you what I did. And it may not work for you, but it will be... Hopefully, maybe a spot for you to start thinking about, man, how can I sit in God's grace? And so this is what I did, okay? I just, in my own time of reading, I opened up scripture, and I got a piece of paper. For me, it was a journal. Put it beside me. And as I just read, every time I came across something that kind of showed me who God was, I'm talking about like characteristic, attribute, who he was, who he is, then I just wrote it down. So if I saw that, man, this passage is showing me that God is loving, I wrote down, he loves. Forgiveness, wrote it down. And after a while, it got to the point where I just stopped. And I was like, I have pages, absolutely pages of love, mercy, forgiveness, graciousness, peace, kindness, faithfulness, repeated over and over and over and over because this wonderful book, yes, it can help us with wisdom and decisions and it can help us 
you know, find encouragement and help us do all these other things. But the thing that we can pull most from this is that we can know who he is. And who God is, is worthy of worship. He is worthy of praise. You can't help but love him so much that you don't care if you just sit there in his presence. I mean, a small example of that is just being able to sit with my wife and just watch a TV show in the evening. And we're not necessarily talking. We're not necessarily going over deep things. We're just sitting together. And I love it. Man, can you actually just sit together with God and love it? Is it a burden? Do you feel like you're wasting your time? Man, are, do, you, do you actually love him enough to just be with him? And that's sitting in God's grace. Understanding who he is and what he's done so much that you just have infinite joy from his presence. And so that's what's worked for me. You can figure out your own thing. But we need to find a way to get to that point because if we can't, then we will always be thinking transactionally, whether you admit it or not. So moving on to verse four and five in Galatians, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The law paved the way for us to be able to understand that the elementary principles of this world wasn't gonna cut it. It's not how God functions, and so Jesus had to come. And so we see two things happening in these two verses. Two things that really show us how important Jesus Christ is. One, he was born of woman under the law. This means that Jesus was a man, 100% human. The son, the eternal person of the Trinity entered into human history, fully divine, fully human. And this is necessary because he has to have the ability to redeem us and the power to redeem us, which can only happen through this unique situation. And I mean, that's, that's beautiful, guys. It's unheard of. And it doesn't really make any sense. Once again, God is saying the way that you think the world functions is not how I function. I will break the chains of this world to redeem my people. So, Jesus Christ, born of a woman under the law, becomes the bridge, the transition from enslavement to freedom. And number two, it says that he redeems all in adoption. I mean, I pray for the day when I, God willing, will be able to adopt my kids. And when that happens, they will be fully my family. Complete status and rights as my children. Doesn't matter if they're biological or not. In adoption, they are mine. And they have absolutely everything. And Jesus Christ coming, dying upon the cross, is fully man and fully God. He is saying that regardless of who you are, no matter what your past is, no matter whether you're someone that was in the church since you were five, or someone who did the most terrible, heinous things and come to know me right now, you are my son. You are my daughter. 
and you have full equal rights as just, just as much as the other person. That's the importance. And what we can see here is that this adoption that Christ brings us is vital for not only our own understanding of salvation for ourselves, but also for our understanding of how the church functions. Because it means that every person in the world is in the same boat. We're all in the same position. Broken, fallen, separated from Christ, separated from God, and yet under him we can all be adopted into his family. We're one humanity, no matter what ethnic group, no matter what race, no matter what country, no matter what ideology, no matter what sin, we all are just needful of a savior. And so we find ourselves in the same position. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 says that Christ breaks down barriers, that he gives humans access to God, all humanity access to God. And Romans 5, 6 through 13 says that Christ died for all sinners so that all can be reconciled to him. Groups within the church want to make it exclusive to only certain people. The groups we talked about at the beginning, they want to say that if you don't follow this certain ideology, then you can't be a Christian. If you don't do this certain you know, cultural thing, then you can't be a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do things the way us Westerners do it. That's not how God functions. He says, under me you are one people, one humanity. And the only thing that brings you together is Jesus Christ not a Westerner, not a culture, not an ideology, not a political party. Jesus Christ, that's it. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no division, no secondary measures, no need for anything else. And the Judaizers had such a hard time with this message because they're saying, we spent generations under the law, submitting to this, sacrificing, not doing the things we wanted to do so that we could have salvation, and now you say that the Gentiles can just have it too? That's where this argument's coming from. They're saying, do you know what we went through for circumcision? <laughs> they should too. I mean, that's their argument, right? That's our argument too. That's what people today still want to say is, man, I've been a Christian since I was a kid. What do you mean that guy on death row can just turn his life around? He's got to pay for what he's done. It's the same thing. Man, we are in the same boat. We need Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what the other person has done. Man, let's celebrate that God's salvation is not fair because we'd all be condemned. So praise God, man. That's the celebration. Let us celebrate in his salvation that he offers us. Six and seven, it says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Man, right here in these two passages, what Paul is doing is he's affirming the celebration that we have in adoption. 
and he's saying that the salvation you have is yes, sufficient, as I have said, but it is also complete. There's nothing else that is needed because it is completely done. And he does this by explaining how the Trinity works within our salvation. He's saying, man, God is the only one that does anything. And so God acts in salvation fully. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, acting within your salvation. There's nothing else to add on to that. God is all that matters. And so he says, think about it in these three ways, the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, he adopts you so that you have the full rights of sonship. And that is not transactional. It's free, available to all according to God's will. So he adopts you. The Father adopts you for the rights of a child. Then the Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is when the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. As we have given faith, salvation and adoption has happened, and the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts, and he takes our nature, one that is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, and he changes it. And so the Father adopts us so that we have the rights of a child, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us so that our nature becomes that of his child. And this is the part where the idea of uh, behavior modification comes in within the church, which behavior modification is not a godly biblical concept because God doesn't say you have to change your sin, you have to do this to be able to be my son. He says, no, you are sinful and broken, so you are my child, and then I will change you. The behavior change comes later. And I will tell you, that's one of the biggest things that people come to me about when, we're talk- when I'm talking to non-believers, people who do not know Jesus, and especially here in the valley, where pretty much everyone knows something about the gospel, right? I mean, we are a very religious community. A big thing that people always say is, yes, man, that sounds good. You know, maybe my, my family follows Christ or whatever, and it sounds like something good, but I just got to get some stuff together first. I got to stop doing this sin, stop doing that. I got to, you know, stop going to the clubs every, you know, Friday. I got to stop doing these things, and then, you know, I'll, I'll be able to but I'm just, I'm just not there yet. Man, that thinking is so corrupted because God isn't saying, man, I want you to stop these things so that you can be my child. He's saying, no, I want you to have faith in me. Then you'll be my child. Then those things, man, they're not going to hold a cup of tea to our relationship. Our relationship with God is the only way that we're ever going to be able to change behavior. The only way we're ever going to change and turn away from sin is because of relationship. And so to ask of it are ourselves or other people before they even know Christ makes zero sense. Salvation comes by faith alone, not behavior modification. Not the killing of sin when we're weak and powerless to do it. Only through Jesus Christ can that happen. And so, 
the Father adopts, so we have the rights of a child. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and changes our nature to that of a child. And Jesus Christ, he is the one that makes it possible. He is the transition from hope under the law to the completion, the full completion of our salvation upon the cross. Jesus Christ is literally everything for us, church. Nothing else. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else is needed. It is just faith in him and the relationship that is born from that. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing else. Nothing else to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And it is enough, and it is complete. The law showed us the folly in our own thinking. Showed the folly in believing that we have to have transactions, that we have to earn our way And now we have salvation in Jesus Christ by faith. And that should be enough to never go back to it. So let us not fall back into these old rhythms. Fall into these groups that want to claim that this is required or this needs to go away. But rather let us focus on what is important. That God has broken the old way and he has given us a new way. And I know there's still those of you that still struggle with the idea, man, that my sin is still ever-present. Still can't get rid of it. I don't know what to do. Those who have doubts, impatience with your sanctification, God, why can't I just be there yet? And it leads you to a place where you just don't know or understand and you just kind of doubt that any of this is real. I get that. I've been there. Or maybe it's even just the simple joy that's promised within Scripture and you're like, I haven't even been joyful and I don't know how long. I know these struggles are real. And so I say to you that the, the pages of Scripture, man, they give us promises that if we truly know who God is, we know that the fulfillment of these promises is real and it will happen And it can be done because he says that we are victorious. Not that we will have victory, but that we already have had victory. That there is nothing left to give. That we can can go throughout our lives continuously succumbing to these doubts and these issues, these, these moments of weakness in our own minds, saying that, man, if I just have this business deal that I can make with God, if I can just do X, Y, and Z, then I will get to where I want to be. Man, God is just sitting there saying, no, no, my child, I've already given it to you. You just have to take it. And so my prayer for you is that you can find that way to rest in his grace. Whatever that looks like for you. And so Christian, man, believe this is true. Believe that this is possible. Trust that the sanctification you seek or the salvation that you so desperately want is already available and given to you. 
And it may be day in and day out, you're submitting yourself again and again and again, and he says, I love you, and I want you, and I desire you. You are my son, you are my daughter. Hold on to that, and I promise that the promises in scripture will come true. I know they have, and we have 2,000 years of history that proves that they do. Jesus does not make fake promises. Man, if you're in here and you don't know Christ, you don't have that relationship, man, it's possible. Transformation is possible. And it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you've been or the things you struggle with. Man, God wants you. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He doesn't just want some other person to you know, give him money or to, or to offer him worship just because he's, he wants all this stuff from us. He says, no man, I want to know who you are. I love you enough to have relationship. No, no other religion says that. Nobody else offers that. You can come to know him today no matter what has happened in the past, no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what things you feel like you have to deal with before you can, man, he just wants to know you. My prayer for everyone in this place today is that you come to a place where you love God so much that everything else just falls away. That you can just sit and worship him, and have joy because of who he is and what he has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Man, God, you are amazing. We love you. You, you have taken the broken and you have made us whole. You have redeemed your people. You have given us hope when there is none. Holy Spirit, I ask that you move through this place, through every single heart here, that you give us encouragement, that you give us assurance, that the joy that you say is there and waiting, that it just pours out upon us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you for who you are. In your holy name, amen.